Let's start our time with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to once again be gathered together, centered on you and centered on your word. Um, We ask for your blessing upon this time. I pray that I would be able to have a clear mind and um, clear thoughts and clear speech, and I pray that all of our hearts would be blessed and touched by your word, that we would be hearts that are receptive and receive your word tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are nearing the end of this study. Next week is our last week. So if we're nearing the end of the study, that means we're nearing the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which means we're nearing the end of Moses' life. His life is drawing to a close. And um, these, what we're looking at tonight and then next week are his final words to his people. The Apostle Peter reminds us of the brevity of life um, when he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Moses is fading from the scene, but the word of the Lord through Moses remains forever. It remains to this day. What a blessing that is. The word of the Lord is no empty word for us. It is through the word of the Lord that God is bringing life to his people. Throughout this whole sermon, throughout this whole study in Deuteronomy, this is the message that Moses has been repeating to us over and over and over again. Hold fast to the word. Hold fast to the word. Put it in your hearts. Put it in your minds. Pass it to the next generation. We've heard that over and over. Pass it to the next generation. Obey it. Do it. Keep it. Walk in it. For it is the word of the Lord. So it is It is fitting that Moses' final words are going to be a reiteration, a repeat of what he's been saying to us all along. His final words that we're looking at tonight are just that. Hold fast to the word. Remember the word. Call the word to mind. When they get into captivity, remember the words. Everything in our text tonight is truly about the people's ability to remember God's word to them. So as we look at Deuteronomy 31 through 33, I want us to think back to last week's text and pull a little bit from that um, into this week and to set the context for our focus today. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 3, and we looked at this last week, says, And when all these things come upon you, when, not if, when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, both the blessing that we talked about over the last few weeks and the curse was going to come upon the people of Israel. So when that happens, um, you call them to mind. You call God's word to mind. You remember what I've said to you this day, what I've been teaching you, what I've been telling you about the blessings, about the cursings, and how when you obey, you're blessed, and when you disobey, you will be cursed. Call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Basically what he's saying, when you're exiled, call these things to mind. Why? Because they're going to remind you of truth, right? They're going to remind you of what happened and why you're where you are. It's going to speak the truth to you. 
and it's for a purpose. Look, in verse 2, it said, return and return to the Lord. So you call, recall them to your mind, remember, and then return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And so he, he's telling them, last week we saw that he was telling them that when these things happen to you, I want you to call to mind the words that I've given to you so that you can repent, so that you can return, you and your children, and so that the Lord can restore your fortunes to you. So it's for their good that they're being called to remember and to call to mind. That's what the word of God is for them. It is God's revelation of himself, and it's, it's the, the revelation reveals God to them. It reveals their sinfulness to them. It reveals the why and the wherefore of what their circumstances are all about. It reveals to them their hope for a future when they repent and what God has promised to restore them to. It is a revelation and a remembrance for them. And these are tools that God is providing for his people as they head into their future, as they head into a future that is going to be absent of their leader, that the leader that they've known all of their lives, Moses. So he's preparing them through Moses, the Lord is, preparing his people and equipping them that they would know and enjoy and experience life. So with all of this in mind, let's take a look at our text today. Um, we're in Deuteronomy 31, and we're going to start with verse 1. And the, the word of the Lord says, So Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. And we've mentioned this previously, that this moment has finally arrived where Moses is going to completely fade from the scene. He's old. But this is the man that they've known their entire lives. This generation has known no other leader. They've known, they barely remember their time in Egypt. He has been for them their deliverer, their, their redeemer. He got them out of Egypt. He has been their lawgiver. He has been in many ways their prophet and their father. And this transition was going to be excru excruciatingly difficult for them. They were about to receive the promised inheritance. They've heard about this their whole lives. So this is a good transition. This is a good change. And yet even good changes are really hard changes. And I don't want us to miss what the people themselves would be experiencing in this moment as they're preparing their hearts to say goodbye to the only person that they have known to lead them. Even though where they're heading is a good place, this is a time of insecurity and instability and fear and anxiety. So what does the Lord say to him them through Moses? Verse 3, the Lord your God himself will go before you. 
He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And to Joshua, he says the same thing. Verse 7, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, so he says these same words, in, in the hearing and in the sight of Israel, Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not fear and be dismayed. Both the people and Joshua needed the assurance that the Lord's presence would be with them as they were about to go into the promised land, as they were about to leave their admired leader. It's the Lord God himself. I just love that phrase, that coupling of words, the Lord God himself will go over before you. Not any other God. There is no other God. And even though he's giving them Joshua to lead them, it's actually the Lord himself who is going before them. And that makes all the difference in the world. Moses is going away, but the Lord never goes away. He will never fade away. He will never die. He is the eternal God. People come and people go. Leaders come and leaders go. But the Lord is the one constant and consistent, and he himself will go with them. Not only that, he tells them again, remind yourself of who he is. Remind yourself. You do not need to be afraid because of his power. He's the one giving you victory. Remember what he did to Sihon and Og? We had learned about that earlier in Deuteronomy. It's been recounted. This is why the word of God is to be remembered because it recounts all the ways in which God has worked in their lives. So remember the past. Remember his power. Remember what he did because what he did in the past is what he's going to do again in the future for you. So you do not need to be afraid. You do not need to be in dread. You can be strong and you can be courageous because of who God is. And because his presence is with you. So the people of Israel are being taught right here how to fight the normal, everyday fear and anxiety that they were facing because of the monumental task that lay before them, because of the insecurity that lay before them. They do that by remembering the truth that God's presence is with them, by remembering the truth of his promise to fight for them and to give them victory by remembering God's deeds in the past. And what was Israel's responsibility in all of this? They were to go, and they were to just obey, and to do all that the Lord had commanded them to do. So in spite of their fear, by remembering who God is, they were then to go into the promised land and be obedient. I don't think there's a different message for us today out of this text 
The message for the people of Israel is the same as the message is for, today, for us today. We live in an age of anxiety. In fact, I would say the anxiety of our age is amped up exponentially in the past three or four years. Anxiety consumes the world in which we live. And to be completely honest, I've struggled with anxiety and fear all of my life. It is a paralyzing thing. It can literally enslave you. But the word of the Lord for us today is the same. We don't have to be enslaved by fear and anxiety, no matter what the future holds, no matter what our circumstances are, because the God who was the God of Israel is the God who is our God today. He has not changed. He is constant. He is steady. He is still the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God, and he is still promised to fight for his people. What did Jesus say to the 12 when he was commissioning them to go to the uttermost parts of the world with the greatest task that they could ever do. It was an impossible thing. And he said, I will go with you, even to the end of the age. And that promise is for us today. He goes with us. He is with us. He has given us his spirit who dwells in each one of us. And his presence is with us. We are never alone. No matter what it is you are facing, no matter what it is I am facing, no matter what the future holds for us and for our families and for our country, we can step out in, in faith rather than fear and obedience because we can know that the Lord's presence is with us. And we have thousands of years of history to remember the ways in which God has worked with his people and amongst his people, preserving his people we fight fear by looking to the greatness of our God, by remembering his faithfulness, his promises, his character, and then we, stepped for, we step forward into our fear in obedience and trust in him. Let's continue on with our text. Through Moses, God is preparing his people for the days to come by instructing them to remember the law. Look at verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, all of it, the whole law, which is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of it written down. Moses wrote it down and he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all of Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people. Listen to this list. Men and women and little ones. The little ones get to be a part of this too. And the sojourner within your towns, nobody's to be left out of this. That they may hear 
and learn to fear the Lord your God and to be careful to do all the words of the law and that their children who have not known it before may hear and learn. So the children are hearing and learning too. To fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses wrote the law down and gave it to the priests. Don't let those words be lost on you. This is a beautiful thing. This is about the preservation of the word of God for the people of God. It's written down and it's given to the care of the priests, the Levites. And they, were care, they cared for the worship of the people of Israel and the tabernacle and the temple later on. And their responsibility was to teach the law to the people. And do you remember how the Levites, they did not get their own land as an inheritance, but rather they were scattered in cities throughout the whole entire land. Well, this is part of the purpose so that there would never be a priest too far away from an Israelite so that an Israelite would never ever be able to forget the word of God because that was their responsibility. And it is said that there was never a priest further than 10 miles away from any Israelite. So they had access to the word of God. So this command here about every seven years reading the word of God, that's not the only time they were going to look at the word of God. They would have had opportunities in their regular worship, in their communities, in their towns, and with the priests that, that were given the responsibility to teach the people the word, to instruct them in how to be keepers of the law, to um, judge cases according to the law. But one time every seven years, at the year of release, you remember what happened in the year of release? That was when the debts were set, they were, debts were washed away and those who were um, indentured servants were set free. They were to gather together at the place where the Lord would put his name and the entire nation of Israel were to come together as a community. And this is what they were going to do. All of them, they were going to read out loud the word of the Lord to them. Why? So that they could hear it, so that they could learn, so that they could obey it and learn to fear the Lord their God. And I love how it's not just the men or not just the women, it's everybody. There's something about the community coming together to hear God's word together. There's power in that and it's impactful. They're coming together as one people to hear from their God through his word. The gathered assembly. And I believe that this is just a blueprint, a picture of what it is we are doing today. When we gather on a Sunday morning, centered on what? The word of God, on God's word. And we, men and women and children, all are gathered together hearing God through his word. It's a beautiful picture. And notice again that the children are a part of the reading of the law. Now I made a special point of this this morning because a, a lot of, of the people that come to the morning Bible study have lots of littles running around. And, but I'm going to make this point again, and there are many in this room that have littles too. Don't underestimate the power of God's word on the heart of your little ones when you're gathered together at church on Sunday morning. 
I know, I know that it feels like when you're trying to listen to God's word or you're trying to worship and your children are distracting and they're making noise and you're self-conscious about it and you have to take them out and discipline them and come back in and it feels like it's a pointless thing to even come. Why don't I just stay at home and watch this in my jammies? but it's powerful in the life of your little one. Don't underestimate the impact that worshiping with a group of grown-ups will have on your children. The word of God will penetrate into their heart. It is powerful. I remember as a little four, five, six-year-old, the sermons that I heard. Those children can understand and absorb the scripture. God has said so in his word. So don't be discouraged, ladies. I want to encourage you, those of you with little ones, keep it up. The Lord is at work in the hearts of your little ones and in you, even if it doesn't feel like it. All right, it's my little soapbox. (laughs) It's in the text though, right? (laughs) It's in the text. Let's continue on, verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Remember where the tent of meeting is located in the camp? It's at the center. So all of the people of Israel are seeing Moses and Joshua go into this tent. They're seeing the cloud descend, and they know that the presence of the Lord is with their leaders. Verse 16, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Wow, God does not mince words here, does he? He's, he's speaking this final conversation with Moses and Joshua. And I mean, I, I was thinking about Moses's heart in this. I mean, he led these people all these years. He loved them, I'm sure, even though was quite frustrated at them at times. But to hear God say, you're going to die and they're going to whore after other gods, surely hurt his heart, surely hurt his soul, surely grieved his spirit. But think about Joshua. He's taken over. <laughs> he's the next leader, and now he's hearing his future. So the Lord is just not adding a spoonful of sugar to help this medicine go down. It is not a soft word. He's a truthful God. But his truthfulness is for good, right? It's always for the good of his people. And sometimes it's just better to get the, the truth out there. Get it out there. So he continues on and he says, Now therefore, in verse 19, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. And so in light of what's coming, 
He instructs, he commissions Moses to write this song for him so that this song would be a witness for God against the people of Israel. Verse 20, for when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring." For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. So the purpose of this song was to come to their mind, to cause conviction in their hearts because of the sin that had brought judgment on them. So this song is very specific and it's very purposed. So the Lord commissions Moses to write the song, and he does. And then the Lord commissions Joshua, verse 23 says, And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He says, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? So he commands the Levites um, to take the book of the law and put it with the Ark of the Covenant. And I just want to draw out this application point that you cannot separate the book of the law or the word of God from the presence of God. It's his word. And we see that pictured in this, in this little scene here where the Levites are taking the book of the law and keeping it with the presence of God. So many times today in our cultural context, they want to separate God from his word. And they want to say, Jesus, I, I follow Jesus, but not the Bible. Well, you can't do that. You can't separate the word of God from the person of God. It's his word. It came out of his mouth. You can't separate my words from me because I'm speaking them to you. In the same way, we cannot separate God's word from the word from God himself. So he has this book, and then he also, he tells them that the book itself is also going to be a witness against them. So we have this song that's going to be a witness against um, the people of Israel. Later in verse 28, he says, heaven and earth are going to witness against them. And the word of God itself is going to be a witness against them. How is it a witness? It's a witness because God's word is exposing our sinfulness. It's exposing our sinfulness. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in place? It is the word of God that breaks our hard hearts. It convicts us. The Spirit uses the word to convict us of our sin. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It exposes 
even the motives that we aren't even aware of. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So again, we see the emphasis on God's word serving as a witness, as a reminder to call people back to repentance. Verse 28 says, Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. And then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. And so Moses begins to teach the song, the song that was written by him, the song that was actually written by God himself to the people of Israel. God has written a song. He's written a song. If you ever wondered what kind of song God would write, well, here we go. Got a song. And as, you, as, we, as we're, we're going to fly through the song of God, um, we're going to look through it. I hope you notice that there's echoes of that meeting, that, tent of, that what God said to Moses in the tent of meeting. You hear that in the song. You hear what God has been speaking to him in the, throughout all of this time in the song. But it's interesting to me that God instructs him to teach his word to the people in a song. It's interesting to me because songs are amazing memory tools, are they not? I mean, sometimes we wish some of our kids' songs would just not be in our heads anymore because they just go on and on and on forever. But songs help us remember things that we would never remember. There are people who have dementia, Alzheimer's, that you start playing an old hymn and they will be able to recall every single word. That's amazing. And that's a gift from God. But it's also a warning for us. We must be very careful what songs we allow in our heads, especially when it comes to Christian songs. Because more heresy has been brought into the church through poor Songs, bad songs that teach heretical teachings, but they sound awesome. And it can lead entire churches away, people away. So we need to be careful that the songs that we're singing and the songs that we're listening to are rooted in what God's word says, that they are theologically truthful and accurate and giving us a whole picture of who God is, giving us the whole counsel of God. Not just a part of it, but the whole. So we need to be discerning as people, even when it comes to the music that we sing in church. So let's pay attention to these songs, uh, this song written by God through Moses. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. It begins, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May teaching, may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So right away we learn that the words are teaching. The words of this song are intended to be teaching. They're intended to penetrate into the hearts of the, the people who are singing them. 
They're intended to have an impact. Like rain has an impact on the ground and like rain brings forth fruit from the ground, the words of this song are to be the same in the hearts of the people. So they're, they're poignant words. They're words that are powerful. And it reminded me of Jesus when he was giving the parable in Matthew about the word of God and the soil, the different kinds of soil. And do you remember the soil, the good soil, when the word of God was planted in the good soil? It brought forth abundant fruit. And so this word that is being spoken, that is being sung, is intended to be planted in the good soil of people's hearts. It also reminds me of Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. It says, the prophet Isaiah says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out. From my mouth. The word of God is powerful. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is what is being said in this stanza of Deuteronomy and this song of Moses. This word is to have an effect in the hearts of the people and to bring about a response from the people. Let's continue on. Verses 4 through 9 contrast the perfections of God with the imperfections of his people. Listen for that as I read it. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Moses said in, the, in verse 3, I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to his name. Has, is he not doing just that? Listen to all that he's saying about our God and who he is. He goes on in verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. Go back in the past and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob or Israel is his allotted heritage. And so we're contrasted. God is the rock. God's work is perfect. His ways are perfectly just. He is the God of faithfulness. He is without iniquity. He is just and upright, but the people, not so much. In contrast to the perfections of God, the people's sinfulness, their unfaithfulness, their senselessness, their crooked and their twisted is highlighted. They are a faithless people, and he is the faithful God. He is their father. He is their creator. He is their sovereign. He made them, and yet this faithless, crooked people, he made them his portion, his inheritance. So there's this contrast intended to work in the hearts of those who are singing these words so that they would see God and then see their faithlessness. Continuing on in the next section, 
Moses continues to expound on the goodness of God. Verse 10 says, He found him in a desert land, speaking of Israel, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. Listen, listen to the, how good God is to his people. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with the honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Honey and oil don't come out of rocks, right? Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. The goodness of God is overwhelming. He is abundant in his goodness to his people, pouring out his abundance on them. Over and over, the scriptures teach us that this is who God is. He is a good God. He is a generous God. And this psalm just continues to just lay it on layer after layer about the generosity of God for his people. But in spite of his generosity and in spite of their receiving of all of that goodness, the people turn from him. And that's what verses 15 through 18 say. Their prosperity led them to apostasy. Let's look at that. But Jeshurun, which is Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he, can you imagine if our worship song said that now? <laughs> Just can imagine all of us sitting in church singing, you fat bunch of people. <laughs> you grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook God, who made him and scoffed him scoffed at the rock of our salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. In light of all of God's goodness to them, they were the recipient of all of his blessings. And yet, they turned to other gods as if those were the gods who gave this all to them. Rejecting the one who created them, who made them, who gave birth to them, the one who had tenderly cared for them, who gave them water out of rocks, manna from heaven, all of the ways in which God had nurtured them, they continued to reject. They received his gifts and rejected the giver of the gifts and went off to pursue other gods. So as a result, the song continues to, to tell the story. And remember, again, this is intended to penetrate the hearts of the people, to help them see themselves and their sinfulness for a purpose. As a result of their apostasy, 
God will hide his face from them. Look at verse 19. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. He's, play, he's doing a little play on words there. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of shale, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains because they had turned their face from God towards the no gods. God will now turn his face from them. What does that mean? What does it mean that God turns his face away? What it means is that when God's face is turned towards his people, they are under his blessing. So when God turns his face away, they are no longer under the blessing of God, but now under the curse. This is about the blessings and the cursing. As a result of their disobedience, as a result of their apostasy, as a result of their pursuing other gods. They turned their face from God, and so God will turn his face from them. They no longer will be living in the blessing of God, and rather they are living away from it, outside of his blessing, under the curse. The curse of God is God's judgment. It continues on in verse 23. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror. No matter where they go, they're going to be afraid. Whether they're in battle, terror. Whether they're at home, terror. The young man, the woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest the adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all of this. God's judgment includes famine, pestilence, disease. The animal world is a threat to them. War is a threat to them, even those who are too old or too young to go. And what is keeping God from blotting out the name of his people forever from memory? It's the preservation of his own glory. It's the preservation of his glory. Lest the adversaries, the people that he used to, to judge his own people, think to themselves that we did this. Our hand is triumphant. Not recognizing that it was the hand of God at work. It was God's glory that he was preserving, and he's preserving his word as well. He always preserves a remnant of people. He continues on, the song continues on, to, to convict and to bring conviction to the hearts of the people. And talk about, it, the next section talks about the lack of discernment that brought them to this place. Look at verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise... They would have understood this. They would discern their latter end. In other words, if they knew, if they had remembered the word of law, the Lord, they would have known what was going on. They would have known that the, the, Lord, the judgment of the Lord had begun to fall upon them. 
but they were not discerning. They had forgotten. He goes on to, to explain, verse 30, how could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? This has happened because of God. But they are missing what is happening around them, what is happening to them. They lack discernment. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of ass. So the judgment of the Lord should have been discernible to the people of God. If they had been in the word of God, they should have been able to see the events that were happening in their life and turn and repent. They lacked discernment. And because of their lack of discernment, the, the, they kept going in their sin, deeper into their sin, deeper into their apostasy, refusing to repent, bringing the judgment of God upon them. But there is hope. Believe it or not, there is hope. Verses 34 through 39, there is hope that the judgment of God will turn to compassion. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense or repayment for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom come swiftly. Impending doom is coming. The Lord is punishing and judging them for their sin. But look at verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people. Vindicate means to clear them of their blame and of their guilt. He will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. When they get to the bottom, when they get to the lowest point, when they've got nowhere else to turn, when their gods, he goes on to say, when their gods have failed them, look at verse 37, then he will say, where are their gods? Where are your gods, O people? Where are they to help you? Where are they to save you? Where are their gods, the rock in which they take re took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. But when they get to the bottom of themselves and they get, their gods don't show up, right? Their gods do not show up. And so that final section God is the one who saves. He contrasts himself to the no gods, the gods who don't show up, the gods that they had been worshiping. And he points them back to himself. Listen to what he says in verse 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, my enemies, and will repay those who hate me. He's talking about his future judgment, the judgment that he's going to bring on his enemies ultimately. He goes on, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy, rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, O gods, for he, listen to this, he avenges the blood of his children. 
and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him, and he cleanses. The word there is atones. He atones his people's land, or it can be translated, he atones his people. There is hope in this. God points, turns their attention away from the powerlessness of a no God to the powerfulness of this God, of himself, of God himself. He's the only one that can kill and make alive. He is the one that can wound and heal. No gods can do that. He is the one to whom uh, will issue judgment on the earth. He is the just judge. Remember how this started out, how God's goodness and how his justice and how his perfections in all his ways. And he returns their hearts and their minds to who God is. He is the only God. And the song of this, the words of this song written by God in it, we have seen the greatness of God. We have seen his perfections. We have seen his graciousness. We have seen his goodness. We have seen the people's failure. We've seen their apostasy. We've seen the results of apostasy. We have seen the promise of future atonement, vindication, judgment, and compassion. We have seen it all just in this one song. And the purpose of this song was to penetrate in the hearts of the people, that they would return to this God, the only God. Look at verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all of these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart. We were to call things to mind, but take it to your heart. Take to the heart all the words by which I am warning you today. Put them in your heart and in your mind. The word of God, the song of God, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Look at verse 47. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life and by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. It is no empty word for you. God's word is at the center of God's people, and it is no empty word. It is a word that is rich. It is full. Moses had been teaching them um, the, the entire word of God, Genesis through De Deuteronomy, all of his teaching, this word is not a vain and empty word. It is a full, rich word giving you all that you need for life and godliness. It is no empty word. Why? Because it reveals to us who God is. It reveals to us the sinfulness of mankind. It reveals the words of salvation and the way of salvation, and it reveals the hope of future restoration. This is no empty word for you, for it has been a provision of God's grace to his people for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years and will continue on. So when the apostle John opens up his testimony of the life of Jesus Christ with, with this statement 
and the word was made flesh. In light of Deuteronomy, that is a powerful picture of who Jesus is. The word, the word of God that we have been talking about all year long, the word of God that came to Abraham, the word of God that spoke to Moses was now made flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is profound. It is no empty word. For in Jesus, we are given the total revelation of God. When we look at Jesus, we have seen the Father, he tells us. For in Jesus, the living word God has revealed himself through him. We have seen the greatness of God. We have seen the perfections of God. We have seen what God's word looks like lived out in the flesh, walking, talking. And in view of the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, our own imperfections are exposed, but with a purpose, so that we may turn to the living word. In Jesus, the living word, we have, we see our salvation. Through his blood, we find the forgiveness of sins. Through his cross, we have fellowship with God the Father. Through his resurrection, we have abundant and eternal life. In it is in Jesus, the living word, that we shall live. And he is very near to you. Paul tells us that it is Jesus, the living word, that we confess with our mouth. It is Jesus, the living word, that we believe in our hearts. And it is, the, it is Jesus, the living word, who has given us his spirit so that we can walk in his ways. It is no empty word for you. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for so many things, but we are so grateful for the word, both the written word and the living word. We thank you for the way that you provide for us through your word, I pray that we would continually feast on your book, on your word, that you would continue, your spirit would continue to show us Jesus as we study your word. I pray that we would be changed by the power of your word, that we would repent when we need to re repent, that we would be comforted when we need to be comforted, that we would be made holy we love you, Lord, and we love your word. Grow that love in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.